Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 22, The Outsider. In this episode, Mr. Poe will read The Outsider from The Outsider and Others by H.P. Lovecraft. Hello, Mr. Bartlett. Hello, Mr. Poe. Are you ready to read another story by Mr. H.P. Lovecraft for this podcast? Mr. Bartley, I am most eager. The publication of The Outsider and Others led to the first review of Lovecraft's works by an individual from academia, Mr. Thomas Olive Mabbitt. That name is most familiar. Mr. Mabbitt was a distinguished scholar of my works and a professor of English at Northwestern, Brown, and later Hunter College. The books of his three-volume set regarding me were published between 1969 and 1978. Mr. Mabbitt called Mr. Lovecraft's writing striking and original. Time will tell if his place be very high in our literary history. That he has a place seems certain. Now, The Outsider begins with four lines by John Keats, one of the English romantics and a fascinating person. Next year, this podcast will take a more in-depth look at his life, along with some of the other English romantics, such as Lord Byron, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and especially Mary Shelley. And now, Mr. Poe, would you read The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft? Certainly, Mr. Bartley. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft. That night the Baron dreamt of many a woe, and all his warrior guests, with shade and form of witch and demon and large coffin worm, were long benightmared. John Keats. Oh, Mr. Poe, rather than add to the length of this podcast episode with any comments, why don't you just go ahead and read the story straight through? This tale definitely depends on building suspense. Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me. To me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken, and yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those sim memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridors seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere as the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gazed steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. 
there was one black tower. When reached above it, the trees into the unknown outer sky, but uh, that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this place, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my results or needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged since my first conception of a living person was that of something mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me, there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strewn among some of the stone crypts deeper down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books, I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as a kid akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I read in the books and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forest. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went further from the castle, the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear so that I ran frantically back lest I should lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So, through endless twilights, I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then, in the shadowy solitude, my longing for light grew so frantic that I could not rest any more and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight, I climbed the worn and aged stones till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that deed, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress. For climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, 
and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mold assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window enclosure, that, that I might peer out and above, and, and try to judge the height that I had attained. All at once, after an affinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holes the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upwards again, pushing the slab of door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went high, I knew that my climb was almost ended. The slab was a trapdoor of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, so no doubt the floor of some lofty and capricious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, but hoped when necessary to pry it open again. Believing I was now at a prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and the stars which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble, marble, bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment, so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then unexpectedly my, unexpectedly my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Tying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength, I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known, for shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon which I had never before seen save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door, but the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. 
Then the moon came out. Most demonical of all shocks is that of the unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could have compared in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying, for it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on a level through the grating nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns, and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was instantly dreaming or magic, but I was determined to gaze on brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was or what I was or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along, I became conscious of a kind of fearsome latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across the swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours much of, must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thick wooded park. Maddingly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me, I saw that the moat was filled in and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, while new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company, indeed making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I ha had never seemingly heard human speech before and could only guess vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that uh, brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I have ever conceived. 
Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and the panic, several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, I trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection of the room, it seemed deserted. But when I moved towards one of the alcoves, I thought I detected a presence there. A hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch, I began to perceive the presence more clearly. And then, with the first and last sound I uttered, a ghastly elation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full, frightful visitness, vividness the inconceivable, indestructible, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish state of decay, antiquity, and desolation, a putrid, dripping mass of unwholesome revelation, the awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world, or no longer of this world, yet to my horror I saw in its eaten away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel, an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort toward flight. A backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous, hollow breathing I half fancied. I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the apparition which pressed so close. 
when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident, my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single and fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized most terrible of all the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream I fled from that haunted and accursed pile and ran swiftly and silently into the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble, and went down the steps, I found the stone trapdoor immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and I know that light is not for me. Yet in my new wildness and freedom, I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I knew always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century, and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. Thank you, Mr. Poe. And unless you possess any other knowledge that you would like for me to communicate, I must take my leave now. Farewell, Mr. Bartley. Farewell, Mr. Poe. Sources for this episode include the complete works of H.P. Lovecraft, the Lovecraftian Poe essays on influence, reception, interpretation, and transformation, and I Am Providence, The Life and Times of H.P. Lovecraft by Sanuid T. Joshi. In summary, even though H.P. Lovecraft had some highly outmoded and even abhorrent social views, a topic I will address later, Lovecraft's imaginative view of the universe is far more important than his prejudices. His work speaks to our fears and the outsider and many readers, in a sense that uh, we all sometimes stand outside humanity, that we are, far more than we would like to think, outsiders looking in. Now, the first time I read this story, I was intrigued with the imaginative world that Lovecraft built, was really blown away by it. But after going over and over it in the making of uh, this recording and, in essence, making it a part of my thinking, 
Well, I had nightmares last night. And uh, the other story, the only other story that I've had nightmares over is the pit and the pendulum. Depressing, but at least that story ends on a note of hope. Lovecraft's view of the world, while hell-like and perhaps even appropriate from the downer side of 2020, is a world without hope, not a very motivating factor. The great documentarian Ken Burns has said that the purpose of a great documentary is to take the viewer to hell and then bring the viewer back again. I believe that H.P. Lovecraft, while highly imaginative, ultimately takes the reader to hell and leaves the reader there. With the coming of a new year and a new president in the United States, we have the possibility of turning the page hopefully eradicating the effects of a pandemic and even making a meaningful attempt to deal with racism as well as climate change. President Biden's administration will certainly make mistakes. No one is perfect and uh, can't be all things to all people all the time. But at least America can be a consequential part of the world again. To quote the West Virginia country music singer Brad Paisley, quote, New Year's Day is the first blank page of a 365-page book. Write a good one, unquote. Let me say that again. New Year's Day is the first blank page of a 365-page book. Write a good one. Well, for most people, I think that 2020 got terrible reviews, and rightly so. So let's hope 2021 is an excellent book. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe and join us for our regular podcast tomorrow as the Allens visit Stanton, Virginia.